0: Welcome to this Burlington Audio Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and inspired in your faith as you listen to this message. We'd love to hear what you think. Please be in touch with us through the website. More information and many more podcasts are all at burlingtonbaptist.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Last week was a gigantic team effort, uh, as all those Type of Burlington moments are, so thank you so much for uh, all of you that helped and served and uh, worked so hard on all our behalfs and on our behalf in particular. Uh, a few things as we get underway, uh, our Burlington vision is to help you be the church with the people and in the places where God has already put you. to that end. We want to help, encourage, support, cheer on, whatever else, resource you to be all that God is calling you to be in those uh, contexts. So if you have a kind of sneaky suspicion that there's a a missional vision growing inside you, or you sense God's calling you to step out in some uh, particular way to get out of whatever is your particular boat and your particular lake, then we'd love to to hear from you, to help you, to encourage you, to cheer you on, uh, to resource you in whatever way. Together we can be the church in the neighborhoods and workplaces and networks of our town. Uh, And on the subject of uh, workplaces, um, I wonder whether uh, we're doing a bit of miscommunication um, around that business leaders huddle that uh, you've been hearing about if you've been listening uh, during the notices. By leader, I don't necessarily mean that you're in a recognized leadership role within your context. We're all called to be leaders, small l, because we're all called to be influencers. So um, don't rule yourself out because you think, well, I'm not a leader in my particular sphere, but you are an influencer and that's the context in which I'm trying to talk about. And when I talk about business, I don't necessarily mean a suit and a waistcoat. I just mean whatever your business is. So don't think I'm doing a job that isn't a business job because I'm not a business man or woman, whatever they're like. Um, uh, so we'll change the whole name around uh, even before we start. And uh, I guess something that will capture it better might be simply a workplace mission. Huddle. So wherever you're working, wherever you're placed, if you're feeling that sense of, hey, maybe God's asking me to do something more here. Maybe this is part of the mission to which God is calling me to, then I'm inviting you. Well, just get in touch. Um, we don't have the logistics or work. We've all got different patterns of, of working. The idea is somewhere around a Thursday to get onto uh, Zoom, which is just like a Skype meeting. We we'll do that for an hour, perhaps every fortnight. Have a go at three or four of those, maybe five, see where God takes us, but just to, to begin to help us respond to what God might be asking us to do, or to begin to support more overtly what God is asking us to do in the workplace. So for example, some of you have started prayer meetings in your workplace, for example. We'd love to use this as an opportunity to encourage you and, uh, and uh, support you and think about what your next steps might be in that regard. So. Um, it's it's not for business and it's not for leaders. It's for everybody in their workplaces uh, seeking to respond to what God is having to say to um, them. And then, lastly, maybe um, before we get into uh, Mark chapter seven, uh, just to 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 reiterate, to reemphasize, to reframe that we're about this rhythm of celebration here and uh, community. We need both. Uh, we need community because it's where mission and discipleship is most effective. That's the core things that Jesus has uh, called us to. We need celebration because we need that sense of corporate worship. We need that uh, uh, journey of teaching and we need that sense of momentum and unity uh, together. So we're looking all the time to balance uh, celebration and... Uh, Community And and as all of that changes, as the rhythms change as we try and adapt to what God's uh, saying to us, we need to kind of keep each of them with a level of equal seriousness and equal intentionality. So the first thing to say in that regard then might be is this, that Burlington is a place to belong which is so much more than just a, a weekly celebration. There are communities across our town and beyond that are sharing their lives together, growing as followers of Jesus and trying to reach out to people that are around them. we love everyone to be part of a community uh, like that and as a wide open invitation for everybody here to find a place in a uh, community like that. Be in touch with anybody. Grab hold of someone being strangled by one of these yellow orangey, orangey, greeny kind of, it's been a very long week, I'm quite exhausted, greeny kind of um, uh, uh, thing and we'll, um, and we'll help you. Let's take community seriously because it's where mission and discipleship happens. But there's also a flip side of that. As we've been changing all our rhythms, I'm conscious that it would be easy for us to become casual about celebration rather than careful. And perhaps I'll say a bit more about that next week. But we need to balance this celebration and community. We can't be casual about either of them. We need to be intentional about both of them as we journey on together. I'm going to stop there. Otherwise, this will be a long extended notice. And uh, then we'll sing the last hymn and go home. So perhaps uh, we better get on with uh, what's been put by, before us. Mark chapter 7. Are you ready? Good. Anything to shut him up. Let's move him on. Okay, you got it open in front of you. You need it open in front of you. I realized um, halfway through that I was doing quite a lot of my prep for this in the New Living Translation. So some of the verses on the screen might be New Living Translation verses. Is that a. Do I still go to heaven if it's not NIV? Just. So if the words are a bit odd, that's why I haven't stooped to the message yet but one day I might. So, we're in Mark, and the way we're trying to approach this particular series is instead of kind of zooming in on a particular story is to try and take a bit of a wider stretch and ask ourselves a question. So why are all these stories together in the way that they are? I mean, we could have taken different chunks. We're going to take chapters because it makes it easier. So why are these stories kind of related? As Mark put the gospel together and gathered the stories of Jesus and the incidents and what happened and so on, well, what's what's going on? What's the theme that we might see by looking just a little bit higher than one individual story. So we're not just going to think about the conflict with the Pharisees, about whether they washed their hands or not before supper, like good Christian people do. And we're not just going to look at that middle bit that Peter didn't read, which was about the healing of the Syrophoenician's daughter, in other words, a foreigner's daughter, to put it in our uh, context, in our vernacular, and not just the story of the healing of the um, deaf and mute man. But I want to ask the question, what, what links all of those three things together? What's going on if we, if we take that? And the amazing thing about Scripture is it teaches us at every level, doesn't it? The big, the big story level right down to, 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 the, to the detail and to the single verse even or even a word that we could spend uh, a lot of time on. So we're in that sort of middle category. Key word then. The dominating theme, I'm suggesting, for chapter 7, and there may be other dominating themes. The Bible is incredibly uh, inexhaustive. Uh, the, The dominating theme for this morning is heart. Your heart and mine. These stories invite us to think about what our hearts are like. What our hearts are like. We begin the chapter... Uh, and we're launched into this situation with the Pharisees. We were introduced um, to the Pharisees' heart. I want to describe the Pharisees' heart like this. the hidden heart of the Pharisees that was ruled by rules. They had taken a principle, the principle about cleanliness, and they had attached to it lots of a myriad of different extra rules Uh, that weren't part of the original instruction in the Old Testament, they had become quite literally obsessed with rules. So verse 4 tells us, similarly they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. This is but one of many traditions they have clung to such as their ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers and kettles. So they're into washing in a, in a big way. Washing hands and washing up. Some of you have never been into that in the whole of your lives. So, and consequently, other people in your family are quite into uh, washing hands and washing up. So these guys are, are well into the whole washing scene. And I guess we have some sympathy with them. Because as Pharisees, the rules started out as a very positive rhythm. We want to keep our lives clean, we want to live appropriately before God, so let's do these certain rules, rituals, traditions in order to help us. And they had a very positive, I would imagine, when they started out, spirit about them. But by now, those rules that once were good and liberating had become binding and uh, de- Diminishing, degrading, perhaps you might even say. Uh, and I guess we have, we have good sympathy with it. I grew up in a context in uh, South Wales where to be a proper Christian, you had to go to church twice on a Sunday. That's just what you had to do. Going once was a pretty pathetic, half-hearted attempt at being a Christian. It was only the proper tough guys that went twice. And, uh, and not, not only, not only was, um, uh, uh, was that kind of uh, uh, imbued in us Sometimes people would even say it as boldly as that. They'd say it in a kind of banterish way, but it's only banter because it's kind of true, isn't it? You know, A bit like Vicar of Dibley. Why is Vicar of Dibley funny? Because it's true. It's not funny because it's nonsense. It's funny because it's pretty close to what happens in ordinary church life up and down the country. So um, the, there was this kind of, unri- you know, the, the proper stalwarts, the real pillars of the church, they would come uh, twice on a Sunday and so those that didn't come twice would be frowned upon because they didn't match up to the rule. Now, no one quite would say it was a rule, but effectively it was an unwritten rule in the community that if you wanted to be a quality Christian, then you needed to get your bottom on the pew at least twice on a Sunday. And, and whilst that might have started off as a very positive kind of engagement, come on people, we need to be together to celebrate and listen to God's word, something that we would all affirm ended up in a rule where what was being measured was not your ability to worship or your absorption of God's Word and your willingness to do something about it during the week. What was being measured was whether you sat on a very hard bit of wood twice a week rather than once a week. And if you managed it twice, then you were a super-duper Christian. And if you only managed it once, well, you're only going to scrape into heaven by the skin of your teeth. So instead of the rhythm being a tool for your faith to grow, it became a rule by which we judged other people and it became a rule that if you are not careful, you ended up even maybe subconsciously focusing on as being the target. Are you with me? So we'd look around in the evening and there would be less of us, but we were the proper chosen ones. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Others of you have never been to an evening service in your life and you're gloriously liberated from all of that stuff. God bless you. So they get asked, essentially, Jesus and his disciples, why aren't you very good Christians? Not because you don't go to church twice on a Sunday, but in this context, Jesus and his disciples are getting asked, why are you not very good Christians, very good faith followers, because you don't wash properly? So the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law asked him, why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? You all know the rule. You've got to wash your hands before lunch. They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. Keeping the rules had become the focus, and they'd ended up being ruled by rules. And how easy is that? Jesus almost hyperventilates. He goes absolutely mad. He rips into them like you wouldn't believe. Jesus replied, you hypocrites. That's quite strong, isn't it? Good Christians don't tend to go around saying that for good reason. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right, verse 6 we're in, prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, they do all the rules, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. That definitely is in the NLT, by the way. But the NIV says much the same thing, funnily enough. Man, that's a sting. A rebuke right there. All they were doing was following the rules. And Jesus is saying, you've got this so wrong, it's almost painful to watch you messing it up. There's all of this going on with the kingdom of God coming, and you're worried about washing your hands, and you've completely missed the point of the whole hand-washing thing in the first place anyway. God's not looking at the rule, he's looking at the heart and if your heart is right arguably you don't need a rule if you love your spouse then you don't need a rule that goes I will not commit adultery because you love your spouse but it is conceivable isn't it that there comes a time when perhaps you don't love your spouse like you should or like you did and the rule is of value to you at that point because it does keep you hemmed in I don't, my heart's not in the right place, but the rule will protect me from making a, a road crash of my life, my relationship, and, and my marriage. But if, if it's the rule that's just simply there, the heart is long gone. And what God's after is not the rule of our life, but the heart of our life. So rules have their place. They can protect us from slipping into wrong behavior. And rules have their place. They can help get us going into right behavior. You do the right thing and your heart will catch up. Are you with me? We've all been there, haven't we? we've all disciplined ourselves to do some stuff. I'm going to do this today, and I'm going to do it tomorrow, and I'm going to do it tomorrow. And after a while, my discipline becomes a habit, and then my habit becomes a, a lifestyle. So rules have their place. But Jesus doesn't want our rules. He wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. We don't need better rules. We need better hearts. If I take my wife out for an amazing weekend... All sorts of things might be true about that statement. If I take my wife out for an amazing weekend and I whisk her away and I wine her and dine her and we have this most marvellous time together, romantic time, where should we be? We'll be in Paris and it's just all wonderful and we have the final meal on the, on the Sunday night before we're going to catch the Eurostar home and it's just oh, absolutely amazing. And she looks into my eyes and she says to me, and she says to me, Dream, dream. Um, and she looks into my eyes and she says... Um, and she says, why? 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 This has been a fantastic weekend. Why, why has this happened? Well, I, I read a book and the rule was, take your wife on a weekend every few years. So I thought I ought to take you on this weekend. Everything about that weekend would fall into nothingness, wouldn't it? All the ladies go, yes. All the men go, no. He still did it. He still did it. He did the rule. He still did it. He was there suddenly there's a massive divide in the room. And it, because the rules might have their place, but he wants our hearts. And there is a world of difference between running on the rule and living out of your heart. They were saying to themselves and others, the Pharisees, look, we're following the rules. Look how good we are Look how great our lives are. Look how sorted it all is because we're following the rules. We can do the same. We can say to ourselves and we can say to other people, hey, look at me, I'm following the rules. Look at what I do. Look at how I help. Look at the things I attend. Look at the way that I give. Look, I'm following all the rules and we can list the rules in our hearts. Rules of our own creation to justify how good, how on track our lives are. And how easy it is for these things to mask, to cover up the state, the condition of our hearts. And so we too hide our hearts, don't we? And the more we lean into the rule might be the strongest reflection of how much we're hiding our hearts. Jesus pushes all that aside and says what matters is where your heart is. We use keeping certain rules as a cover-up for the state of our hearts. But there's something way more serious going on here actually. The more I've reflected on it, the more serious it becomes. The rules approach is not simply an exercise in self-delusion. I'm okay because look at all the things I'm doing in an external sense. Look at the boxes I'm able to tick. Look how good I am because my bottom's on a pew twice on a Sunday. There's something much more going on, which is why Jesus probably gives it such a strong response. This approach has a shallow view of sin. Jesus goes on to explain where sinfulness comes from. With the rules, we are always thinking about sinfulness coming from our external behavior. I'm a sinner because I do certain things or because I don't do certain things. If I keep the rules, then I'm doing okay. But if I, if I don't, then I'm a sinner, a wrong person, because I haven't kept the rules. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's a, a, a hugely inadequate view of what it means to be sinful on the the inside. Sin is not something external. Jesus says, no, sin doesn't come from your actions. Where does sin come from? He launches straight in at verse 20. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them from it is from within, out of a person's heart, the evil thoughts come: sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. And we're all guilty of all of those on a spectrum. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. I'm not a sinner because I do sinful things. I'm a sinner because I just am. That's the condition of my heart. And and that to uh, sin the simplest way of just understanding it is it's about me first. It's about orientating my life around me rather than God. That's my natural my natural bent is to carry this disease of the heart. The disease of the heart produces sinful fruit, but the fruit itself is not what makes me. Uh, a sinner the pharisees acting like sin was was like an external action no sin is no sin is much deeper it's this internal disease you're not essentially jesus is saying a good person that sometimes does wrong things but you're essentially a bad person that has to be encouraged and helped to do right things and whilst we find that hard as grown-ups as children we know exactly what that's talking about We're always encouraging children to do the right thing because naturally, left to our own devices, without any restraints, without anyone pulling us along, naturally we will go all over the shop. Sin is a disease. And we can treat the symptoms. I'm going to try not to behave in a sinful way. I can develop habits to try not to be sinful. But it is a disease of the heart uh, and I've got this theory that perhaps I've said to you before that it goes wrong at both the beginning and the end of life. You see, young people, they don't care two hoots. They've got no sense of, uh, of uh, no interest in hiding what's going on in their hearts. So if they don't like you, you know they don't like you. <laughs> no bother with hiding that. And then there's older people, I mean, towards the end of their lives, who, who have run out of energy trying to hide their hearts. So they don't like you either. They're just grumpy. And then there's this sweet spot in the middle when you're about 48. See, see what I did there? The sweet spot in the middle, when you've got enough energy to hide your heart. You know what your heart's saying, but you're going to... And isn't it exhausting to act in a way your heart doesn't actually... Isn't it exhausting to love someone when your heart is not full of love? Isn't it exhausting to forgive someone when you don't feel full of forgiveness? Isn't it exhausting? Uh, and, and so we can try and treat the symptom, and we can try and manage our behavior and The shops and the magazines and the self-help is all absolutely full of trying to manage behavior. Jesus says right here, the condition, the issue is your heart. However much we manage the symptoms, we still carry the disease, which takes us on a bit further It's a very shallow view of salvation. The epidemic of sin in our lives can no more be cured by washing your hands before lunch, than it can by conformity to any other rule, or even going to church twice on a Sunday. You see, effectively the Pharisees are saying, well, providing I wash my hands and I get those other bits about the kettle and all the washing up correct, then I'll still be approachable to God. I mean, how shallow is that? What Jesus is trying to convey is the condition of your heart and mind is so messed up, you can't possibly just wash it away by washing your hands, and you will know that. Because we've all felt guilt and shame and pain and sadness and brokenness. And we know that all the washing up in China can't help us with that. Or even doing the washing up in your own kitchen, for that matter. Caricature, in our context, as long as I make sure I wear the right clothes, I go to the right places, I do the right things in my life, I wash my hands before lunch, or I say grace before the meal, then I'll make myself acceptable to God. The illusion of the hidden heart is that we can have all this Reality in our hearts. All this shame, this guilt, this uncleanliness that can produce all this fruit potentially and we can just wash it away with a bit of fairy liquid or a bit of dove soap. And Jesus goes, you've just got this wildly wrong. Such a shallow view of what the disease really is. Such a shallow view of what salvation is all about. And no wonder he calls them hypocrites. He just kind of explodes, doesn't he? He says, absolutely, this is a farce. This is miles away from what's true about the human condition and it makes a mockery of relationships, doesn't it? If our relationship with God is all about rule-keeping, there is no relationship. There's no relationship with our families if all we're doing is simply just keeping the rules. Who, whoever made the rules and whatever the, the good intent of the rules is, if it's about rules, if it's not about our hearts, then it makes a complete mockery of relationship and it makes a complete mockery of the cross, doesn't it? Just a few weeks ago, we looked at the agony of all that Jesus faced. The, the darkness that overcame the world, that entered his soul, that separated him from God. The idea that somehow we can wash that away with the washing of our hands or rocking up to a couple of prayer meetings and a church service is a nonsense that Jesus wants to explode here. None of that will deal with the condition of our hearts. So what will? Which takes us to the next story. And the next story is where Jesus meets a woman... And I'm going to describe the reflection of her heart as the honest heart. Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre. Why is that important? It's because Jesus, uh, Mark is wanting us to know that what happens next is uh, with a Gentile, a non-Jewish woman. Now, interestingly enough, The Jews might have had this very positive view about themselves, providing we wash our hands and do all our bits, then we're acceptable to God. When it came to the Gentiles, they had quite a different view of sin. The Gentiles were sinners just because they were Gentiles. In a sense, it was a much more honest view of what was true. Because they were a Gentile, because they were of that ethnic origin, they were kind of just born into sin. Tough luck, mate, you're a sinner. It's like a disease you carry in your heart. Someone needed to hold up a mirror to the Pharisees and go, Hello? So so we've got this different context now where where there's this Gentile person who kind of, by definition, whenever she comes into contact with a Jewish person, knows that they are understood to be a sinner, knows that they're defiled, knows that by definition, by birth, by ethnicity, they're unclean. Such a contrast to the Pharisees who were completely self-sufficient, who didn't need a saviour, they just needed their fairy liquid every morning. This woman knows her need. She knew her need, and she asked Jesus for help. Admittedly, Jesus' reply is quite hard to interpret, and you can spend uh, the rest of your life reading about what people say about it and trying to understand it. But looking at it in the light of the whole chapter has given me some fresh revelation on these uh, verses. Jesus is putting his finger on Something and Jesus is trying to, ex- uh, sorry, Mark is trying to express it in these stories that he's telling. So she'd asked Jesus to heal her daughter who was demon possessed. Since she was a Gentile born in, um, in Sar- Syrophoenicia, Jesus said to her, First, let the children, let the Jews eat all they want, he told her, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. I think Jesus is kind of tongue-in-cheek saying, well, you know the, you know the deal, girl. You know the deal that God blesses the Jews, and hello, you're a defiled sinner, Gentile. You know the deal, he says, with a twinkle in her eye. And as sharp as a flash, she comes back and understands something about who God is. Isn't it amazing? What the Pharisees couldn't understand, this Gentile woman perfectly understood about the nature of God. She said, yes. But even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Even the blessing of God is so great it can never be contained with one group of people and one nation. It will come to all of us. Jesus kind of says with a twinkle in your eye, you're a Gentile. Do you know that you're full of sin, defiled, unacceptable to God? And she simply goes, yes, that's right. I'm totally aware of who I am. I'm totally aware that I've got nothing to offer. I can't puff myself up. I can't boast about how great my heart is. I know that I, I, I am who I am. But taking the banter of Jesus' words, even the dogs get well looked after, such is the grace of God. And she received mercy. She knew she didn't deserve. She knew she had no right. She knew she had no bargaining power. She just came and asked for mercy. And notice how this is a picture of salvation too. She doesn't just get some scraps, does she, from under the table. She gets her daughter released from the power of demonic forces. I mean, none of us would go, that's a small thing. You with me? She got the abundant blessing of God poured out onto her life. If God did that for us, we would hardly feel that he'd given us just a little bit from under the table. Such a contrast there already. Can you see between the the hidden heart, I don't really need anything, I just need to wash my hands, do these simple things, and I'm all right with God, to the honest heart that goes, actually, I'm not all right with God. I've got no bargaining power, I've got nothing to offer, I I know that I'm defiled, I know that I'm unclean, I know that I'm messed up, all I can do is ask for mercy. Mercy. And she gets mercy poured out on her family in a wonderful way. So what's been set up here is the issue of the heart. That we need our hearts touched. We need our hearts changed. We need our hearts restored. Whatever our external compliance to laws, rules, rituals, whether we're good Christians, because we say grace before our meals, or not, is ultimately the issue of our hearts Salvation is getting our hearts dealt with. You with me so far? Enter the third and final story. Verse 31. Then, um, and we get introduced to the healed heart. Verse 31. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. So he's still outside of the Jewish kind of setup. Uh, There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. Verse 33. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears, then he spat and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven, and with a deep sigh said to him, Iphaphra, which means be opened. What's going on in that moment? You've got this, uh, this kind of deaf and mute man who is pretty much isolated from everybody. I mean, we all know the feeling about being lost or lonely in a crowd. You imagine being deaf and mute. You're kind of lost and lonely in a crowd all of the time super isolating experience for a a human being. And and Jesus, it says, takes uh, him away from the crowd, uh, away from all the distraction, so that this person will know that he has Jesus's undivided attention. Then Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. That's quite a say intimate type thing perhaps not uh, that's the wrong but it's a quite a close-up and personal thing isn't it you know when you go to the opticians and you can see what's crawling in the opticians beard because you're up right really close yeah <laughs> do you know so it, it's like that you can't stick your finger in a chap's ears from a long way away can you you're pretty close in you with me so so he's got rid of everybody there's just the two of them this man's been ignored all his life because he can't hear and he can't speak it's just i mean everything's just a huge effort And Jesus is focusing on him as a person. Fingers in the man's ears, then he spat and touched the man's tongue. Gosh, we'd think twice before doing that, wouldn't we? Certainly be more careful who we sit next to in church. What's going on in this relational, this physical closeness? I want to suggest that in this physical closeness, this this encounter with Jesus, you can't describe it as anything other than being up close and personal. This encounter with Jesus is heart to heart. Why do I say that? For two more reasons. Firstly, because then Jesus, excuse me, because Jesus sighed. What, what happened? Did Jesus just, something of, the, of the, the compassion, the heart of Jesus just erupted. You know, that deep groan, that deep kind of longing, that deep kind of um, heartfelt compassion for the man in front of him kind of exploded, came out of Jesus um, and enveloped uh, uh, the man. The encounter with Jesus' heart to heart. Second reason it was heart to heart is because of the word that Mark uses. Mark uses a Greek word, um, an unusual Greek word, to refer to the man being mute. The word is not used anywhere else in the scriptures. Well, first thing to note, it's not the usual word that's used for mute, as in a mute man. It's a different, unusual word, and that word is only used one other time in the Old Testament. So all of these people reading it who are versed in the Old Testament suddenly go, ding, 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 ding. I've heard that word before. And just like you would expect with the Bible, and just like we know with the Bible, there are connections absolutely everywhere. So they're reading this and they're going, why is he using this odd word to describe this mute man? Ah, that's what Isaiah 35 is all about. Which you knew, obviously. Obviously. And Isaiah 35 is a prophecy way back in the Old Testament about the coming of the Messiah. And it says this using the same words Say to those with fearful hearts, it's all about hearts. Say to those with fearful hearts, Your God will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf, same word, unstopped. And you go, Oh, I see. The mute tongue, verse 6 will shout for joy. Oh, I see. When Jesus is opening the ears and loosening the tongue of this man, He's alluding in His language and Mark is picking up on it. This is, this is a sign of something so much more. This is a sign of the promised moment when not only will eyes and ears and tongues be opened, but this is a sign right here and now that the hearts that are broken are being healed, right there, on the side of the road, or in the house, or wherever they were. So it's all about the heart, the hidden heart, that we lock away, and we contend ourselves with keeping the rules to make everybody look like our heart's in the right place, and to help us feel we're in the right place, and, but, but we betray ourselves with the internal reality of our heart's Then we're taken on a journey of hope because we go to the honest heart. You can be honest about your heart and it doesn't all fall apart. We think that if we're honest about what's going on in our heart, the whole world will fall apart. But the Syrophoenician woman discovered that when she was honest about her heart, somehow it opened up her heart to receive the huge mercy of God, which she didn't deserve and she couldn't have expected and she could do nothing to earn, just like you and me. And then we get this final story where Jesus up close and personal kind of does a load of physical stuff but somehow opens up his heart and uses language to, to, to allude back to the promise that when Jesus comes he will fix us, not by giving us a set of rules. It's so misunderstood Christianity, isn't it? That Christianity is for people that need to try and do better. They're for good, do-gooders. There's never ever been the story of true Christianity. It's about people that have got hearts messed up finding that their hearts can be healed. Ha. And there it is in Mark chapter 7. And it's what Jesus came to do when he died on the cross and rose again. So where do you need your heart touched? Honestly, where do you need your heart touched? Because that's the deal. That's the, that's the offer. That's what Jesus is, is, is just inviting us uh, through these stories to say, okay, where, 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 am I, where, where, where am I not being honest about the state of my heart? Where where do I need to examine and go, oh gosh, yes, my heart's not in this. My heart's not in this. I'm kidding myself with all external stuff, but my heart's not there. Where do I need to be honest about my heart? Uh, And then not with a sense of the world collapsing or being overwhelmed with condemnation or guilt or shame, knowing that as I'm honest about my heart, just like the Syrophoenician woman, as she was honest about her heart, the mercy of God got poured into her life, into her family. If I'm honest about my heart, I open up my heart for the mercy and the grace and the healing and the forgiveness and the love and the transformation and the joy and all, all, all the stuff that Jesus came bring it's a good news story isn't it it's about our hearts where would jesus touch your heart today let's be quiet i guess there may be many places where our where our hearts are hidden our hearts are hidden with bits of guilt and shame that lie unresolved hearts are hidden with disappointments hearts are hidden we're angry with god about stuff angry with others about stuff hearts are hidden because i feel stuff i don't want to feel carry stuff I don't want to carry, places where our hearts are hidden, and we so get that word from Isaiah 35, our hearts are anxious, troubled, we know they're not what they are, and we know how easy it is instead of looking at our hearts just to keep going with the rules, the stuff, if only I do, I do, I do, I do, and it's not that any of that's wrong, it's just that there's a bigger prize, it's just that there's a greater gospel, it's just that there's a bigger freedom for our hearts to be trust touched. To be healed, to be cleansed, to be restored. To feel hope where we felt hopeless. To feel warmth where we felt coldness. Forgiveness where we felt resentment. Love where we felt hate. To feel our hearts alive where they've been dead. Help me to be honest about my heart. And to know that in that moment of honesty, healing is just a touch from Jesus away. So Lord, I give you my heart.